Catherine, DFP editor here. Today's episode is an interview with Nicole Chung, author of the memoir, All You Can Ever Know. When listening to her conversation with Eugene, I was struck by how insightful and interesting every minute of it was, so much so that I barely cut any of it for length like I normally would. We've done several episodes on adoption at this point, but what's special about Nicole's is that she digs into what it means to put such a personal, detailed story out for public consumption, where suddenly your opinions can be seen as the barometer for what's good or bad, where your story is both deeply personal and also stops being primarily for you. Here's Eugene. Welcome back to the Divided Families podcast. Today I have with me Nicole Chung, author of the nationally best-selling memoir, All You Can Ever Know. She's also editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine, and thanks so much for being here and making the time throughout all of this pandemic craziness. Of course. Thank you, Eugene. And actually, we interviewed your friend, EJ Ko, on this podcast. Oh, that's wonderful. she, like yourself, she has connections with Seattle. I'm also in the Seattle area right now. So it's just kind of an interesting coincidence, I guess, also because my friend Paul that I started this podcast with is in D.C., so where you are now. So just kind of a weird network there. But we've been taking a lot of interviews based on adoption. The best thing about your memoir when I read it was that I had always wanted to ask, and I actually mentioned this in our pilot episode, when I was in Korea, I met a lot of adoptees and I had always wanted to ask this question, like, what is it like to be adopted? I mean, I did ask it because maybe that's just my personality, but it's just a very difficult question to ask. So I think that your memoir allowed me to get an answer to that without having to ask that question, you know, and also get a more thorough response because it's writing. So I think that that is what makes it so powerful. And I think that's also what a lot of adoptees also would probably gain from it is I can finally talk about it without talking about it. So today I have a little bit of a different schedule in terms of I'll be asking you some questions, but I also have some questions from Korean adoptee friends, some of which you know. So um, it's a very small world, but I guess just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about your story for people who are unfamiliar, how you came to write the memoir? It's also not easy to write the memoir. So how did you cross that uh, hump? Yeah, of course. Just a little bit about my background first, because most people won't know, of course. I'm actually somewhat rare among Korean American adoptees in that I was born here in the US. My birth parents are Korean immigrants, and I was the first person born here uh, on US soil. So they they had moved just like a couple of years before I was born. So like I have an older sister who was born in Korea. And like most of the Korean adoptees you meet, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say pretty much all of the ones you've met most likely were born in Korea, adopted and brought over here. And so there was this immigration process for them as well. And I mention that always because I talk a lot and obviously write a lot about adoption and Korean adoption. I know a fair bit about it, but... I try not to speak for Korean-born adoptees, or at least, you know, we have some overlap in experiences. Obviously, many of us growing up here in America, in overwhelmingly white communities, often, um, you know, there's, there's going to be overlap in those experiences. But at the same time, I know that if we choose to search for our birth families, it's a very different process. I have the privilege of never having my citizenship questioned or in danger. And as you probably know, many Korean-born adoptees have, have had the opposite experience, like too many where they're citizenship, they can't produce documented proof because that was overlooked by parents and or the adoption system. And so they've even had their U.S. citizenship called into question. I have the privilege of that not happening to me, right? So there are some real key differences. So I I always mention that. 
My birth parents were small business owners in the Seattle area, and then I was adopted. I was placed for adoption after being born super premature and brought to a small, small town in Oregon by my parents where I grew up in a white family, a white neighborhood, a white school and community. Did not even really become close to or get to know any other Koreans until like college. And as for like the memoir and where that came from, it really was a process. I feel like I had to get away from from home, like even to some degree out of college and away from the distraction of college to like fully really think about and have the freedom to process and question things about my adoption that I'd been told my whole life by my parents, by other people. I think that's fairly common among a lot of adoptees where we don't start to grapple with some of those big questions until we're away from home. It's very difficult when you're still living in your parents' house and and not because they're necessarily not supportive of that journey. Plenty of adoptive parents are and mine probably would have been to some degree and and not to a different degree depending on what I wanted to do, right? But I just think it's difficult when you're still a kid and then adolescence is this whole other terrible adventure. And then like I was focused on getting out of my small town and getting to college and making my own decisions and like I mean looking for my first job, just all that stuff. I was really in my mid-20s before I could like sit and really question, okay, what were the effects? What does it mean when an adoptee, me, grows up? A transracial adoptee in particular, like what questions do I still have that were never answered? And is it important for me to try to find those answers now that I'm an adult? My adoptive parents always told me like, if you want to search, you know, you should wait till you're older, just because I think they felt it would be like too much, maybe for me and for them when I was younger. So it didn't even really feel like an option to search or to look for those answers till I was an adult. And as you know from reading my book, it was really becoming pregnant with my own first child that was sort of like that final push. It wasn't like I had never thought about it before, but that was what made it feel newly urgent. And it was several years after my search and my reunion where I began writing about it at all. And those first essays I did not show... Well, it's not true I didn't show them to anybody. I was in a really small writing group at the time, so I showed them to like four people. And I never published them. They were just, I needed to kind of like write my way to writing about adoption. It was this thing that was huge in my life that I avoided writing about for so long. And then finally when I did, it was like the floodgates opened. Again, it took years to work up to publishing anything. But every time I did publish an essay, I found out people still had questions. It was hard to really get out the full story, give it a full nuanced treatment and feel like I was being fair to everybody, adoptive parents, birth parents, everybody in like a 1500 or 2000 word piece. And so the more I told the story bit by bit piecemeal, the more I started to think this is probably a full story. Like I can sort of see the arc and how it would go. And like maybe a full length book is the way that I can tell it and give it the space and the nuance that it deserves. And so that's really where the book came from. But again, it took years to get to that point. No, yeah, as you were speaking, I was thinking to myself, that's a lot of a lot of ground covered. And for this episode, I definitely want to make space for the questions from adoptee friends. So I'm going to just try to use my time economically. But the one thing that I was most curious about was like stereotypes of adoptees. So how people view adoptees, because I don't think that I'm unique in that I had not met any adoptees my entire life until I was in a program that specifically filtered for adoptees in Korea, right? So I think it's just very 
rare. Like, I feel like everybody knows that there are adoptees out there, but I feel like it's very uncommon for you to actually know somebody and also to have a friend who's an adoptee, like a close friend. So I thought about that a lot in the section where you talked about search angels. It's just that very awkward feeling that shows up when you're dealing with something that you don't know in terms of, oh, this person is adopted. Do I have to change the way that I interact with them? Or in this case of a search angel, it's almost like I am saving somebody. I'm creating these connections and therefore I'm a good person creating reunions. But it doesn't go beyond that superficial level. So I was wondering if you could just read that passage from your book and then also just talk a little bit about your experience with search angels, your experiences with stereotypes regarding adoptees. Okay. I had a brief vision of this person ringing up my birth parents or just showing up on their doorstep, intent on coaxing them into a reunion with a daughter they had not seen in nearly 27 years. She might imply that they owed me a meeting for the sake of my personal healing, never mind their shock or what they actually wanted. Did my own feelings and wishes matter to her, or would I be just another tally mark in her book of saved lives? Um, yeah, that, that quote might sound a little bit harsh, but like for context, I ended up working with a search angel, and that was their term, it was not mine. The official term is confidential intermediary. Yes, supposed to be an impartial third party in the state of Washington where I was adopted. In most cases, you don't actually have to go through confidential intermediaries anymore because adoptees there for at least a certain time period have access to their original birth certificate. So they could do this research, you know, request their original birth certificate and potentially just find their birth parents on their own. But at the time I searched, for the time period that I had been adopted in, you had to go through a confidential intermediary. And I initially had this moment of like, well, you know, it's expensive and it might not be great, but in a way, maybe it's nice that I have this additional layer of filter and so do my birth parents. So the way it worked was if the person had contacted them on my behalf, first of all, she, she wasn't allowed to share like any identifying information that would allow them to find me either. So like no last name, not where I lived, not where I went to school or what I did for a living or anything like that until like I okayed it. And then she wasn't allowed to release any of their info to me until they okayed it. And the one thing I liked about that is, okay, I would know that if they really wanted to be in touch with me, it would be their choice. They could say yes, and I could feel confident that it really was what they wanted, right? But the system is not perfect. It has a lot of downsides. And the one I ended up working with was not the first one I talked to. She was not even the second. I mean, it was just a really unexpectedly difficult process finding an intermediary I felt remotely comfortable with. And even the one I ended up with, there were moments where I really felt like she went into it assuming all along reunion was what would happen and it would be wonderful, like a Hallmark movie, and there would be no angst and, you know, no problems whatsoever, no complications. And even going into it, as sort of naive as I was, I knew it was going to be deeply emotional and complicated and hard probably for all of us. And I was really worried she would present it to my birth parents on my behalf in a way that felt pressuring. You know, Nicole's pregnant with her first child. She just wants to talk with you. Can't you give her this? And I did not want them to feel that pressure. If they talked to me, I wanted to know it was because they wanted to talk to me. And because of the way the law was, I had no way of contacting them myself and saying all those things. Although I tried to put them in my letter. Like, I understand if you don't want to be in contact. You know, I, I hope it's a decision you feel like you can make as well. But it's just not a perfect system and it did cost me like a thousand bucks, which is a lot of money and to me at that time was especially a lot of money, but I had no other way around it. So, I mean, there's a lot more I could say about that process. I, 
I don't like bear my intermediary any ill will and she did what I wanted. She did what I hired her for. She was mostly kind to me and did the job. But finding someone to be your proxy <laughs> to your long lost parents, it's a very heavy decision. Even I was surprised how long it took for me to feel like I could, I'd found someone I could move forward with even. And then you asked about stereotypes regarding adoptees. I mean, certainly I think, uh, and my inter intermediary was not an adoptee herself or a birth parent or an adoptive parent. She was just, um, and I have no idea, honestly, I, I don't know how much training Washington State intermediaries at the time were required to go through. I suspect like not a lot. She wasn't a counselor or like a social worker either. So like no training in that sort of more therapeutic side was not there to offer like emotional support or something. But I do think some of her, and just like more broadly, a lot of things people have said to me over the years about reunion, the possibility of it, about adoption, sometimes those things are informed by stereotypes about adoptees, whether it's that we all, 100% of us feel this like deep longing and this gaping open hole because our birth families aren't there and we all feel a burning need to search. I mean, certainly lots of us search. And for a lot of people, it is a hole and that's okay, but like, I don't feel comfortable saying it's universal, you know? And on the flip side, I've had so many people tell me like, they draw attention to like my love for my adoptive parents as though that is what gives me, that's what makes me safe. That's what makes me not angry. That's what makes me approachable. And I don't think it's fair to adoptees who do have more difficult relationships or who maybe even are estranged from their adoptive families. Like, that wasn't my experience, but of course, it doesn't mean that those who have experiences that are harder are like less legitimate. It doesn't mean they aren't voices we really need to listen to because we do. I would argue it's very important actually to hear those hard cases and those stories that make us uncomfortable. I would say particularly from transracial adoptees talking about cultural disconnect and white supremacy and their families or their communities not being able to support them or even actually othering them despite their love for them. That happens a lot. So I think those are all stories that need to be heard. And I'm very aware of the fact that people see me on a surface level as this, you know, loving, safe, approachable adoptee that almost gives them another excuse to ignore the voices of adoptees who they view as angrier. And I don't think that's right or fair. Oh, I'm very glad that I asked that question because I think that's a very, very good response and also reminded me of yesterday I was watching the PBS Asian American documentary series. I was watching that and then Viet Tan Nguyen, he has a quote that I found recently after the watching that documentary series where it says, I think it's on his Twitter or something, but it says, I speak, but I am not a voice for the voiceless. I might have butchered that, but the sentiment still gets across for me where it's, I am just, you know, representing one, like an N of one. There are so many other voices out there. And I think that's just also a very, very good reminder for us as we do this podcast. I mean, just by virtue of space, we can only have one or two or three people per topic, but that doesn't mean that that's it, that that's all that's out there. Yeah. And like, it's, of course, it's the job of a writer to not like try to speak for everyone, of course, but there's no point to writing if it's catharsis for you or your diary entry. Well, let me back up. There's definitely a point to that, but to publish something like a memoir for like public consumption, hopefully there is something in it that people can find something universal amid the personal which is very different than like making yourself a spokesperson for like adoptees everywhere. And that's the tension, right, of memoir that's about any topic, right? Like how do you speak to your personal experience in a way where there's still something for readers to grab onto and think about and develop their own opinions about independent of your story? 
I've heard from a lot of adoptees who've said your story's the first time I saw anything like my own experience in literature. But then I've heard from plenty who are like, your experience is nothing like mine, but it was nice to read it, you know? And I, I think those are equally valid, equally important reactions. And I feel very honored by both of them. In general, whenever anybody spends time with the book, I'm honored and grateful. Um, yeah, and I think if I'd gone into it thinking like, I have to be the voice for adopted people, or even just all Korean adoptees, I would never have had the courage to start. That is too huge of a task. It's an impossible task. Really, all you can ever do is say what you know to be true for you and see if people respond. They will also get their own truths out of it. It might even be things that you wouldn't have thought of. But the relationship between a reader and a book is their own also. You know, and that is not something for an author to dictate either. I know people have probably gotten things from my book that maybe I wouldn't have thought of, but that's okay. That's actually how reading is supposed to work. For sure. And I think that's also how we hope that this, whatever the listeners get from this conversation, you know, it's not in our control, but hopefully there's something there. The last question that I had from me before I turn to my friends is, just related to closure. And I actually wanted to ask about motherhood too, but I feel like there's a lot in your book about that. So I'm just going to let listeners find the book. But the question that we have in terms of we as in me and Paul, as we've gone through these stories so far, and you know, we haven't done that many yet, but we came into it maybe naively with the idea that, oh, like reunion is the goal always, right? Between divided families. Sometimes we found that that is actually not the goal. Like it, it doesn't have to be forced upon somebody. So I have this quote from the end of your book where you do kind of gain some closure, yet at the same time in this quote, you say that it's not really closure. So I think it's a good quote to read to get into that. But I was wondering if you could just speak to the topic of closure. Of course. From the time I was young, I had assumed the same truth that freed me would also free my birth family. That the rush of air and light sweeping away the secrets would come as a relief to all of us. If I learned one thing in the early days of our reunion, it was that I could not compel another person to feel comforted, to feel whole, to forgive themselves. The peace I'd wanted so badly to give my birth parents all along was never in my power to give. And yeah, I, I can definitely try to speak to the issue of closure. I, I think it's like impossible, honestly, in most situations in life. Most things that are that are on your heart and weighing on your mind for like, let's say years in the case of, of my, my book and my experience, it's going to be impossible to get full closure. And I wouldn't say like I went into my search or reunion thinking that's what would be delivered. I mean, I didn't know really what to expect. And a lot of things happened that I would never have expected. But I, I think I did know going in, like I think I knew enough to realize this was not going to like 100% clear everything up for me. Like, I wasn't going to probably get every question answered. It wasn't going to, like, undo feelings that I'd had. You can't go back and change the past. I'm still always going to have grown up adopted. And I'm still always going to have felt and experienced what I did. And to the extent that any closure is possible, it can't be through something like a search or reunion. I was really privileged to be able to search at all. Many adoptees just try and don't have enough to go on or like the laws are such that they cannot get access to the information they need. So I also knew going in just what a privileged position I was in. And the quote I just that you just had me read really speaks to this. People do what they need to do in order to survive. That is the theme of like so many books and it comes into mind too. 
I did what I had to to grow up where I did and get out and which is not to say it was horrible but you know I was always going to leave that place <laughs> and did what I had to do to try and like build a life for myself and have a family and certainly a lot of luck and privilege along the way as well but I think to my adoptive parents and my birth parents to a great extent and my whole birth family including my sister for years it was about doing what they had to do to survive and maybe the adoption was one of those things but then like part of surviving part of going forward is figuring out what place that has in your life and not to give a lot of way but in the case of my birth family it was to not talk about the adoption and to not share it with people I think they kind of let like the skin grow over this wound to a certain degree and that's what they had to do to like process it and move forward because when we did reconnect just the shame that they felt having made that decision shame I did not want them to feel it was clear to me that they had put this in a box and put that box away and that was what they felt they had to do and nothing that I did or do going forward for the rest of our lives is going to take those feelings or those choices away so I mean yeah I I don't know I think one reason I searched was this idea of bringing not closure but maybe at least some healing if they had ever regretted it if they did feel ashamed I didn't want them to feel that way I wanted them to know I was okay I thought maybe that'll bring you some peace and it might have I think it did to some degree but at the end of the day that's not closure <laughs> either there's no getting past it really there's just you incorporate it into your life it's honestly a lot like like any other loss, speaking personally, like I did, I lost some things when I was adopted. I gained some things, certainly, and I'd never say I didn't, but there is no like papering over that. There is no getting rid of it. There's no fully regaining what you lost. There is just incorporating that into your life as best you can, if you're able, if you're lucky enough to, if you have the support to do that, and then, you know, you move forward, but it's part of you. It's always part of you. One thing that I realized as you were speaking is that there is a very big difference between families that are separated when the parties are older versus when they're either from birth or very, very young. Because there are some cases that we've talked about on this podcast where the son is one or two years old and then they get separated at the Mexico border and then they reunite and I don't even know who you are. You know, I was two years old. I kind of remember, but not really. So I guess there's a very big difference when you speak about closure in terms of For sure. when that break is. But just like lots of adoptees are adopted at older ages than I was, but I was two and a half months. So you're right that I didn't have those initial memories or even like, I wouldn't say we didn't imprint at all, but my contact with my birth parents was so minimal, partly because I was in the neonatal intensive care unit. Even if they were able to visit, I think they each held me like once or twice between birth and adoption. It's not even like I was ever at home with them. I was in the hospital so yeah, I mean, to whatever degree I'd imprinted on them, it was very like initial and primal. I, I don't have active memories. It's obviously way different for older kids. Yeah, I think when you mend that gap, if you don't even know what the size of that gap is, how do you actually get closure? You know, you get some kind of closure, but it's not the same as if you were 14 when you were separated and then you got back together when you were 18 or something like that. You can kind of return to some sense of normalcy, but... In a lot of these other cases, it's not possible. And I think that when we assume that it should be just as easy as filling those holes, the aforementioned holes, that's just not the right way to think about it. So I think, yeah, I think that's really helpful for thinking through closure and how it might differ. But 
that's all I have for my questions. I have some questions from friends and actually working on this podcast right now as of recording this are two adoptees. So um, the first question from my friend was, do you and your adoptee friends talk about your adoption experiences? <laughs> because in my experience, we hang out, but we don't actually talk about our personal stories too much. Yeah, that's a great question. I think my data is a little bit skewed because when I meet adoptees now, especially like large groups, so often we're all hanging out on purpose. <laughs> and it's like partly to talk about adoption. Like I had the honor of giving a keynote at Con, the Korean American Adoptee and Adoptive Family Network conference last summer. And of course, there were massive numbers of adoptees there. It was like a great affirming experience just for me to be in a room like that. But, but in any case, like we were there to talk about adoption. So I'm trying to think like adopted friends. I only had a few growing up. We did not talk about it, but we were kids. So I don't know that that would have been the expectation. I wrote briefly in the book that I had a friend in college. I found out like a year into our friendship that she was also adopted. And, you know, we spoke about it once for like two minutes and then never again. I don't feel like we were avoiding it. It was just like, oh, you too. But sometimes I have found hanging out with adoptees in smaller groups or one-on-one -on -one that will end up getting into it. And then I have certain adopted friends where like, it'll come up every time. It won't be the only thing we talk about, but like somehow it will just naturally come up. Often it's about our adoptive families, or if we've both been through a search, say, like maybe we'll talk about that. I found it really helpful sometimes to talk with adopted friends, especially Korean and other transracial adoptees about growing up in our white families and white communities. And where we are with them now, a lot of us were talking after the election and during, actually, for example, about like, God, how do we talk to our parents or like our conservative white family members about this terrible administration? A lot of us felt like we had a duty to try. I certainly felt like I had a duty to try. And it was also really difficult. So, so sometimes I would talk to adoptee friends about that, like in very specific ways, where it's not even like we're talking mainly about adoption, but adoption is relevant to how we experience this issue in our families. To go off of that question, this one is a little bit maybe deeper. It's have you ever felt resentment towards people such as your birth parents, adoptive parents, well-intentioned white folk, or people who feel like they can judge your life? If you do, how do you balance any resentment with the love you feel for your family? Oh, well, sure. I think it's natural to feel resentment, especially toward people who are judging your life. <laughs> so yes to that group for sure. Yes to well-intentioned white people. And honestly, I think the only part of that question that I struggle with a little bit is my birth parents. It's sort of like by the nature of adoption and the fact that they did literally give up their parental rights, they owed me nothing. And just speaking for myself, it's completely legit if other adoptees feel differently. I'm sure some do. But for me, I always felt like, okay, that was a clear, hard line in the sand. They made a really difficult choice. What that choice meant was, by definition, they owe me nothing. It was like all they felt they could do for me at the time, and they did it. And honestly, probably way harder for them than for me. So I still feel uncomfortable. I don't know if I've ever even let myself consciously feel like a deep resentment toward them. It doesn't mean I, I don't feel sadness or sometimes frustration, especially like between my birth father and me. There are times when, I mean, I, I really care about him and I respect him a lot. And I know he cares about me and respects me a lot. But he's got these walls that have been built up over decades. Again, going back to that whole do what you need to do to survive. He grew up in Korea in the 1950s and he's lived a life. Also, there's this idea that he doesn't, he doesn't feel answerable to his children, which is something a lot of parents feel across different cultures. And so I've always felt like I don't want to push him too hard or make him feel like he owes me even answers. And at the same time, I'm such a curious person 
that like at times when I have asked a question and he has shut down, it's been hard not to feel hurt or like that's a judgment of me when of course it's not a judgment of me. It's just him and that's how he is. But I have sometimes felt like that, just like that divide and then that frustration and sadness over that divide. And in terms of my adoptive parents, this is hard too because my mom passed away recently and my, my dad my dad passed away two years ago. So like since this book was written and published, I've really lost my adoptive family. And I guess especially right now, it's hard to think about that resentment question with them because I'm mourning them. But I mean, I, I do feel like I can say, sure, less consciously growing up and then more grappling with my adoption and race as like a young adult and in my 20s and 30s. Also like coming up against real gaps in our in our experience and our opinions, <laughs> arguing with them about politics, which I've done, you know, since I was a teen and in college. Sure, at times I did feel maybe resentment. The clearest thing I can think for it is, again, frustration and sadness because I wanted this solidarity that sometimes I really did feel was present and sometimes I did not feel it was present. And that's hard because you want that from your parents and the people you love. And when it came to me being an Asian person, a person of color in this country, experiencing it differently than they did, it was a really hard thing for them to grasp. And I got tired of explaining it sometimes, but we did. And we did love each other a lot. I do love them a lot. And so for me, that was a competition I stayed in, which is not to say I judge adoptees who've done different things. My parents showed up for me in a lot of other ways that made it possible for me to stay in. I, I know that's not the case with everybody. But yes, to answer the question, I guess, yes, I don't, I don't think of myself as resentful all the time, but sure, I felt it and felt frustration and felt sadness. Yeah, and I don't think that that resentment is any unique. I think that everybody to that level, you know, feels resentful. We're all kind of frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> like it's all, I mean, there's a lot of like justified anger out there. And I, I have felt that too. But yeah, it's definitely complicated because these are relationships that aren't, they change all the time. God, even with my parents gone, the way I think about them and feel about them changes sometimes. Like certain things come forward in your memory and your emotions. And then there are other days where you're feeling or thinking something completely different. So I think those shifts are natural and, and you're going to feel, you feel a whole range of things about your family, about well-intentioned people, about strangers judging you. I knew when I wrote the book that obviously the book couldn't be like an airing of grievances. <laughs> like it had to be much more than that. Again, I reject the idea of publication as catharsis. I think writing can be great catharsis, but to publish a memoir that is for other people, even more than it's for you, way more actually than it's for you. It has to move beyond, beyond that. Mm. I think that well, not just my friend, but everybody listening will find your answer really helpful. I think because a lot of us listening, we're all, you know, mid-20s, early to late 20s, right? And I think that we, I mean, especially as we talk to each other, we can't really look beyond that time because we feel like what we feel now is what we'll feel forever, which is not the case. But, you know, that's what you are led to believe because you tell yourself, I'm an adult now. This is the end of my development, <laughs> which is just not the case, right? Like there's so much more down the line. So, yeah, I think that that will be a very, very helpful answer. Yeah, these questions will be kind of hard, but I'm going to ask them because <laughs> I said I would ask them. Um, the next one was just, has anyone ever called you ungrateful? How do you handle that? 
Oh yeah, white people will email me sometimes. They go to the trouble of going to my website, finding the contact form. Oh, by the way, if you're a white person who didn't like my book, please don't do this. But, but they'll go to the trouble of doing this and then sending me a form email telling me like, how sorry they feel for my adoptive parents and for having such an ungrateful daughter. And sometimes they'll go off. I had this person tell me, you just can't accept that your birth parents didn't want you. Like they don't deserve, you know, you even thinking about them. I was just like, wow, like what's your damage? Who hurt you and why are you like this? This would be terribly like devastating to get if I were still in my mid twenties, I gotta say. And I don't mean to be condescending at all, but like I had to get to a point where I was I had dealt with a lot of this stuff before I could write about it publicly, you know? I couldn't have written this in my earlier mid-20s. I could have written other things, <laughs> but this book, I had to be past it a little bit because getting emails like that would have killed me. It would have killed me, like in my early 20s, in my teens. Even as I was going through the search and reunion process, like I could not have had that, those toxic, toxic voices in my head. So yes, I've absolutely been called ungrateful, which is kind of amazing to me because I feel like if you read the book, if anything, the criticism could be that I've had people tell me this too, like you are not hard enough on your adoptive family as though there's a perfect level of honest and hard that I should be on them. I mean, I get what they're saying, but like family's complicated. It is not a black and white thing. My parents aren't villains and they're not heroes and neither am I. So, but yes, I've heard the ungrateful line plenty of times. And then I've heard its flip side, sort of like along the lines of that respectability and approachability we were talking about before, where people are like, oh, you're not like those angry adoptees, so I really feel like I can trust and relate to you. I've had white adoptive parents tell me, I was so scared to read your book because I thought it would be the screed, and then you proved me wrong. And I'm just like, you know, I didn't write this book to be your perfect, respectable adoptee either. I wrote it to be my experience in the hopes that maybe it's helpful to other people. People will also see what they want to see and take what they're going to take from what you write. And like I was saying before, a reader's relationship with a book is intimate and it's theirs. And I guess I have to be okay with that since I put the book out there with knowing that people will read it and think like, oh, she's a good adoptee. And other people who read it and think I'm a terrible, ungrateful daughter. And then most people will be somewhere in between. And for the second part of that question, when you said that, you know, if you were younger, it would have been a lot more devastating. What is it about now that allows you to kind of have footing? Well, I mean, I, I've been to therapy <laughs> and I, I've done a lot of journaling. I've talked with a lot of friends. I have a really strong years now long relationship with my sister, my biological sister. We talk about all this stuff whenever one of us needs to. I have a really supportive husband and general friend network and also... I got over my embarrassment over my feelings about my adoption. I would say in my early to mid 20s, I still felt like it's this thing, but it shouldn't be that big of a deal. It's weird that I think about it this much. Most people probably think I don't think about it or they think I think about it all the time. And either way, I don't like them thinking that about me. So I felt like all this pressure to like, you know, be normal and not stand out and not talk about it. I was still very much coming out of that feeling of like, I have to assimilate, be approachable, be that good adoptee. I felt that pressure a lot of my life. So part of why I can write about it and think about it differently now is having set down that burden. And the search and the reunion was a big part of it, but so were the years I spent after building those relationships, talking about it and processing within my own families. Part of it is probably becoming a parent and talking about this stuff with my kids 
And kids do not let you up off the mat. <laughs> doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable talking about something. In fact, that will just make them want to talk about it more. So figuring out how to have those conversations too with like the next generation. And then just all the time I've spent writing, publishing, editing other people's work, seeing like what it takes to write something personal, to put it out there, and then see what conversations start. Sometimes see real solidarity or community build, or at least empathy. I think I've also seen how often talking and writing about it can really make a difference for people. And so like not to sound all cheesy and earnest, but that to me is worth it. It sort of makes the bad stuff easier to deal with. For me, I don't think it's like that for everybody. I don't think everybody owes anyone else their story or their trauma or anything like that. But for me, I have, I'm able to put stuff out there now that doesn't hurt me and to deal with the responses. Sometimes still hard work, sometimes still difficult, but I'm taking care of myself and the people that I need to take care of. And so it is easier than it would have been for me 10, 15 years ago. I have one last question from my friends, but I wanted to add one of my questions really quickly because you had mentioned talking to your children about it. At the end, aren't you like teaching your daughter Korean, like how to write Korean? I would say teaching is way overstating what I'm, do what I'm doing. <laughs> how has that been going so far? Because I mean, since you've written that, it's been a while. And to what extent has their understanding of adoption changed since then? I mean, it seems like they're already really mature <laughs> at the end of the book, but yeah, considering how much time has passed. Yeah, so that's with my older daughter. At the end of the book, she's like five-ish or four-ish. She was an extremely mature small child, incredibly for her age. And I don't really like teach her Korean. I've tried to expose her to it. She's older now, and so her attention is divided among many things. But she'll often still ask me, or like she'll remind me, we haven't practiced for a while. <laughs> and so I would say it's like very slow going. I would feel like really discouraged if I had thought it would be easy to become fluent or even conversant. I mean, I never really knew if we'd get to that point, but I wanted to at least expose her and myself and have it be something we did together. She has some children's books and had children's books growing up in Korean. So now in terms of how understanding of adoption has shifted, I mean, my older daughter's actually read this book with me. She's probably read mm. it on her own several times. Her reading level is far ahead of the curve. <laughs> I mean, I did write the book hoping that, well, I guess kids older than her, but like it's a junior library guild pick, adult crossover for high school. So I do think it's very accessible to like middle and high school students. And I wrote it to be that way in part because I really wanted younger adoptees to have it. There's so little adoption literature for kids or young adults and almost none of it's by adoptees. So I did want it to be accessible in that sense, while still fine for adults to read. But in any case, yeah, I think she feels, my older daughter anyway, probably feels like an expert because she's read this book like four times. But she'll still have new questions for me. Or she'll ask me how I feel about something, or she'll ask me sometimes what my sister has told her cousin. So like, I'll talk about that with her. She has questions about family history. Sometimes I know the answers, and sometimes I don't. So... I think her understanding will just continue to grow, honestly, as her understanding of everything grows. When she was younger, she had this very basic definition of adoption, while still, even as a child, knowing it was complicated and wondering how she would feel if she were adopted. There was this point where she asked me if she would ever be adopted too, you know, and like, yeah, yeah. And like one time, I think a few years later, she asked, would I have had to be adopted if we were poor or something? So like she was already grasping it's more complicated than many people think it is. But 
I just think she'll continue to probably read and think and we'll talk about it. You know, one thing about the legacy of adoption is it's really not just limited to the adoptee or their birth family or their adoptive family. It is very much something that carries forward into future generations. And that's what I'm starting to see as my kids get older, as my niece, my sister's daughter gets older and has more questions. That's how we're talking about my adoption and how our family came back together now. And the last question that I had was, do you find race to be an aspect that can't be ignored and divides your family in some ways? And in parentheses, white parents talking to their kids of color about race specifically. How do you wish conversations of race with your adoptive parents yeah. had played out? I don't know if I find it like helpful for me personally to think of it as this unbreachable divide. I mean, for sure, they were just never going to understand what it was like to grow up non-white in this country, just like I was not going to understand what it was like to be white in this country, except through observation. I got to say, it looked pretty rad to me as a kid. <laughs> How do I wish they'd talked about it? In my family, and I wrote about this in the book, it was very much always presented as your race does not matter. It certainly does not matter in terms of how much we love you, which is good. I mean, it shouldn't have. But also I was explicitly, and then in lots of ways implicitly told that I shouldn't expect other people to notice or care either. All that mattered was the kind of person I was inside, which we all know is not true. Do I think my parents were colorblind? I don't. I think maybe they thought they were. A lot of well-intentioned white people believe they truly are. Maybe they even were where I was concerned, but were they where everybody else was concerned? No, I can say that definitively. They were not. No one is. And so I wish there'd just been more acknowledgement of that. I wish I had been given the language and understanding to recognize racism when it happened to me, to name it, and to talk about how hurtful it was and... You know, and sometimes it's not like there's going to be a solution. It's not like if you stand up for yourself that necessarily makes the bullies stop, right? I mean, there was not any discussion at all. I didn't even tell my parents about the things people said to me or like the racial slurs I heard. I don't think I told them about that till I was in my late teens or early 20s. I know we talked about it, but they were like shocked when they found out. And I was like, this happened for years. It wasn't like a one-off thing. God, I just didn't even really feel like I could tell them. You know, there's something there in that when I was seven, eight, nine, I thought I had to protect my white parents from knowing that all these people actually did care about my race. Unfortunately, I mean, I know that's a burden that a lot of transracial adoptees have felt. So a thing I, I often say when asked about adoption and talking to transracially adopted kids about it is just... I think it's hard for a lot of white parents to do. We know from studies, also, white parents aren't talking with their biological white children about racism. But you really, really, really have to if you're raising kids of color in this country. If you're raising black kids, Asian kids, that is not a conversation that you can avoid forever. It's going to be a matter of understanding and processing and survival for them. It'll be part of their reality, so you have to talk about it. And I guess I would just say, transracial adoption is not for everyone. It's okay. If you can't have those conversations, if you aren't ready to really get in there and, and really be your child's first best ally when it comes to these things, probably transitional adoption is not for you. And that's a thing to know about yourself before you go into it. Yeah, that actually kind of brings it full circle because I think the beginning of your book is counseling people whether they should adopt or not, right? I'm going to clarify there. I'm really careful not to tell people yes or no, but I was asked in the book where I write about being asked by a white couple who wanted to adopt, like, was I okay? Did I have any issues? Would it basically be fine? And at the time, I sort of, I just didn't feel able to really get into it with them. I was 22. And I hadn't really done 
the work I needed to do. I hadn't had the space in my life that I needed yet to like have that conversation. And so basically told them, yeah, it'll probably be fine. It's okay. And, and I've thought so many times of what I would say now, but it, it was very much not a discussion I could really have in a deep nuanced way at 22, which is not their fault, but I just wasn't able to do it. And I think that's about all I had to ask, but in closing, I guess, did you have just anything else that you wanted to say or any advice for adoptees, non-adoptees? Just Oh, gosh. Um, well, yeah, it's a, a lot. So you can choose. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. I guess I'll just say, like, I always encourage adoptees who feel like they want to write about or talk about this to do so, because I do think we need more stories out there. And at the same time, I always want to stress, you don't owe anybody anything. You don't owe strangers or even your friends or your family your deepest innermost feelings about adoption. And if you do decide to write about it or like say get involved in activism or reform, that's great. I would just encourage people always to try to take really good care of themselves and be patient and gentle, especially at first, and make sure they've got good support networks and people they can talk to about it because I think it's a hard thing to do alone, honestly. I think that would be, I guess, my only advice for people who are thinking about writing about it themselves. Yeah, I think that's very, very good advice. No, thank you so much for your time. I think my time was, you know, when I say that my time is not as valuable, it's mostly because you had to put yourself out there to create all these conversations, right? Including this one and including among other adoptees who have read the book. So yeah, just thank you so much for sharing your story and continuing to share your story and talk about it. Thanks. I'm really honored that you wanted to talk and I really appreciate you making space for the conversations that you're having with adoptees. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to check out Nicole Chung's memoir, which you definitely should, All You Can Ever Know is available at your local bookstore. If you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, you can check us out on social media at Divided Families Podcast. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for that lovely music, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.